Greetings, fellow Who-Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. I'm recording this bit on Saturday night, the 30th of April, and I've just come back from Manhattan, where I was invited to an early screening of a documentary about the Fiddler on the Roof movie. The documentary is called Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, Then I was invited by my friend Irene, a Doctor Who fan from New York City, who you'll be hearing from on this program in the coming months. Fiddler on the Roof is obviously a big part of my childhood. It was the first uh, play that I ever saw performed on a stage, a high school production when I was uh, six years old. The film was directed by Norman Jewison, who in spite of his name is not Jewish, although that is explored in the documentary which also features interviews with several cast members and is narrated by Jeff Goldblum. Watching the documentary was interesting for me, not only because I'm a big fan of Fiddler on the Roof, both on stage and screen, but also because it ties into the Web of Fear in a slight way, the Doctor Who episode we're talking about today. You see, Norman Jewison, who directed the Fiddler on the Roof movie, had previously directed In the Heat of the Night, a poster for which appears in the London Underground in Episode 6 of The Web of Fear. Although it appears under a different name, it is unmistakably the same movie, as the poster advertises both Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Also discussed in the documentary are the pogroms, the horrific anti-Jewish riots, which took place throughout the country of Ukraine in October 1905, There was a pogrom in Odessa and a pogrom in Kiev, essentially on the same night. That affected the author, Sholem Alechem, who was the author of the stories from which Fiddler on the Roof is based. And it also affected my great-grandmother, who, well, one of my great-grandmothers, who came to the United States as a direct result of that pogrom. So there's a lot of shared cultural DNA between myself and Fiddler on the Roof and to a very small extent, The Web of Fear. I love Web of Fear. I love the book. I like the TV episodes. And we'll talk more about that over the rest of this episode of the podcast. But what does have to be acknowledged is that Web of Fear is the first Doctor Who story which has an overt anti-Semitic trope, the character of Julius Silverstein. And for a series that was basically co-created by Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert, both Jewish, That is kind of hurtful. However, it's not the first time in history that a character like this exists. certainly is not the last time. This is primarily a podcast about the books, and of course the character is changed for the book. Very grateful to Taron Stix for that. So, with that being said, let's turn to the novelization. Coming up next, a conversation with my friend Bill Evenson about the Web of Fear. Let's get to it. to celebrate grab a drink and fix a plate but before you feel too great remember that we suffered nights like these are filled with glee noshing dancing singing we but we sing in a minor key to remember that we suffered being happy is selfish remember that we suffered you have no idea what pain is remember that we suffered hey i am back now and i am joined by a first time guest bill evenson welcome to the program 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you and I did a Trap One together last year when I interviewed you and your co-author about your debut book. And for the uninitiated, what book was that? That book is called Look at the Size of That Thing. <laughs> uh, it's a humorous Doctor Who guide uh, written by two people who are too crazy to write a Doctor Who guide, apparently, because it goes off the rails a lot. It's good to have a book whose title you cannot pronounce with a straight face. <laughs> yeah. See, I always think of it as being a Luke Skywalker line, but uh, it's also a Jamie line. <clears throat> which dovetails beautifully into our topic of conversation today, which we'll come to in a moment. But I want to talk about your many other credentials first. Okay. I hear you most often as the comedy voice of the month on Reality Bomb because you have featured in innumerable comedy sketches there. Yes. Yes. Uh, I never know what I'm going to be doing on Reality Bomb every month. But uh, yeah, I think I'm I have a something like a 90 something episode streak of being on every episode. I noticed one came out recently and I don't remember if I'm on it. So maybe it was just broken. I don't know. <laughs> I know that Sage guest hosted one episode for Graham and Joy. And I don't recall if you were in that. I don't remember. Yes, I'm in it. See, Graham will work me in. I might just have one line somewhere. Like I might introduce something or something like that. Yeah. But I'm usually in the comedy sketch. And you also have a more regular gig as the co-host of the Frankenstein Minute podcast, which most of my audience I hope will be familiar with. But in case we have newcomers who are not, what kind of show is that? So what that is, is uh, the classic universal Frankenstein film series, uh, the Boris Karloff ones. We've taken them with, a, with sophisticated software and split them up into minutes. And each week we talk about one minute of each of the films. We've been doing it for three years and we're about, actually, we're, we're not quite halfway through the third film yet. So we've been talking about these movies a long time, and we're not getting anywhere. <laughs> because when I had you and Stacy on Trap One about a year ago to talk about look of the size of that thing, you were about halfway through Bride of Frankenstein. So yes. in a little over a year, you've made it from the middle of the second movie to the middle of the third. The third movie's longer. Third movie is almost two years long, is the way I look at it. So <laughs> I like have a, a proposal for you. Minutes. Okay. I have discovered on Audible the audiobook of the novelization of Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. Oh my god. Okay. And in case you didn't know it, Bill, the audiobook of the novelization of Doctor Who and the Web of Fear runs for three hours and forty-four minutes. <laughs> now I've done my math. That is two hundred and twenty-four minutes of audiobook novelization. Yeah. You and I yeah. could do the Doctor Who and the Web of Fear audiobook novelization minute. And that would take us 224 weeks. And right. that would amount to just about a little less than five years of podcasting. What do you say, buddy? I mean, it sounds like a breeze compared to what I signed up for with Frankenstein. Because we've got, what, eight or nine movies to get through. Let's do it. I'm in. Who reads it? Do you know? Um, I think it is David Troughton. Okay. Okay. It is, in fact, David Troughton, uh, Patrick's David Troughton. son, who was not in The Web of Fear, although he was in the story before this, Enemy of the World. He's an Emmy? Enemy of the World? 
Yeah, he has a cameo, I think, in the surviving, the originally surviving episode three. He plays one of the uh, random soldiers in the security card. Okay. Okay. And then, of course, he has a larger part in the war games, and then, of course, he has starring roles in Curse of Peladon and Midnight. But he got his on-screen debut in uh, Enemy of the World. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea. I, of course, remember him from Curse of Peladon, where he's... I just hate that character. <laughs> he does a fine job, but I just really hate that guy. That is a strong take for what I think I is a pretty know. cool Maybe story. I should, I should, yeah, it's a good. Oh, it's a great story. I just think he's when when the when the camera cuts to him, it's not a positive development in that story. Well, the costuming does him no favors. He has that That's weird very true. tone hairstyle. He's wearing the supermodel thigh high purple boots yeah. with, the, with the satin purple miniskirt. Yep. Showing a lot He's of got thigh. nice legs. I'm not complaining about the legs. Neither was Katie Manning. But even so, it's a bit much to take in. <laughs> yeah, a bit much. And I want to give a moment um, to look at your home studio. I have recorded with a lot of fine men and women over the last six months on this podcast. But your home recording studio is one of the greatest things I've ever seen because you have all the Blu-ray sets face out. So I'm looking at these amazing artistic photo illustrations of every doctor who's had a blu-ray set which is five of them at this point and then you have your classic series dvds lined up behind the blu-rays and then you were playing on your flat panel panasonic tv you were actually playing the web of fear with subtitles so i was able to actually watch and read the story over your shoulder that's why i had to turn it off yeah very distracting so this isn't my first rodeo. Yeah, I, I, I've got it organized just right around my head, so you, you can see more of them. There's nobody behind me, right? So when you were recording for the Frankenstein Minute, is this your tableau, or do you go into a different room where you have all your Frankenstein memorabilia laid out? I got to be honest, I've done that. Yeah, it depends. It depends, but yeah, when I've done it on video like this, sure, this all has to be replaced. <laughs> How long, Bill, have you been a Doctor Who fan? Oh man, um, I've uh, I've uh, <laughs> I've heard a lot of people that can identify the episode, the day that they started watching. I'm uh, I'm friends with people like Steve Manfred. If you know who Steve Manfred is, so everything's very particular. You know, some people can really identify it. And I can't, but it's, it's gotta be 81 or 82. And I, I watched it on our PBS station. I don't remember what day. I don't remember if it was, um, episodic or, or omnibus, but it was definitely Tom Baker. Tom Baker was my doctor. And, uh, I did see, um, uh, him regenerate into Peter Davison I remember watching the five doctors, so I assume that I, I probably saw it, uh, on that original broadcast right around then, early '80s. So you came in a couple of years ahead of me, and I should point out that as a veteran of Rec Arts Doctor Who in the early '90s, I am very familiar with Stephen Manford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is a well-known yeah. name in certain corners of fandom, and not just fans of the Doctor's wife either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yep. And I have you today not to talk so much about the episode itself, although we'll get to that, but this is primarily a novelizations-related podcast, and I know my experience in the States, I got into the books almost as soon as I got into the TV series, 
and the the highlight of my of my weekends was every two weeks being taken to the bookstore to pick out two novelizations as my salary in exchange for babysitting my kid sister after school. And I'd be staring at one or two full shelves of novelizations in the local Walden books at my local Long Island mall. So the stress of having 30 minutes to pick out just two books out of a whole row, probably 40 or 50 books across the two shelves, that still pervades my dreams to this day. So for me, the novelizations are as much a part of my fandom as, as the TV episodes, as I guess the topic of this podcast will clue in. When did you get into the books, if at all, and what was your book buying experience like when you were getting into the show in the early 80s? So I grew up, uh, my mom was a librarian, so my book buying experience was limited, but uh, I'm very familiar with the Pinnacles uh, because we would get them from the library. And um, when I say I'm very familiar... I don't know. I was a kid, so I don't really remember. But I remember I remembered the feeling of it, right? I remember the feeling and the smell of those books, basically. Um, I, I feel like that our library had the hardcover pinnacles. But, you know, anytime you, you make a statement like that, somebody will come around and say, no, they didn't come out in hardcover until 1992. You know, I don't know. But I was definitely a reader of those books. And I felt like the selection was very limited as it as it was then, you know, in the library. So when you're talking about uh, making a choice between 40 or 50, I definitely never had that choice when I was a kid. It was six. And I probably checked out all six and then read them all. And then that was it. Yeah. I think there were 10 pinnacles in total, but it was limited to the run between Day of the Daleks and Talons of Wang Chiang. So if you're reading the pinnacles, okay. you never really get to encounter the first or second, or even fifth and sixth doctors, because the Pinnacles were in print right up to the end of the series in '89, but they only ever gave you two doctors out of the seven classic ones. And even then, there's the one where it's a oh dinosaur invasion. Actually, I think you, I think Barsky talked about this because I listened to that one. But um, yeah, I think it's dinosaur invasion where they say it's the fourth doctor and they put like one sentence in the book. They put something at the front of the book, but they also have one sentence in like page 10 that mentions a scarf. Other than that, it could be either anybody. Yeah. I would love to know who edited those pinnacle books in the late seventies. And if they are still alive today, that's a conversation I am desperate yeah. to have. I think pinnacle books is still in print in Manhattan under a different name. So I got to reach out to them and find out who their doctor who editor was, They'll probably write yeah. back and say, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Who wrote this one sentence? Because other than that, I assume they're the same. Yeah. I mean, I have seven of the ten pinnacles, and the rest I have in target form. Regrettably, Dinosaur Invasion is one of the ones that I have as a target instead of a pinnacle. I have the pinnacle because someone told me about this particular uh thing I just talked about uh, when I was at Gallifrey one year and they gra it, that person is Matt Evenden. He grabbed that one and bought it because of that. And it's, I, so I sought it out. So I have it. I can prove it. Well, Galley is coming up. We record this at the end of April. It's coming up in less than 10 months. So that is a goal for 2023. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, you've got a, do you, do they have uh, any booksellers at LI who are you a frequenter of LI who? I am. I have been at every Li Who except for one because it's only a 
It's about 60 miles from where I live in Brooklyn, so it's an easy drive for me. Although I stay at the hotel, which uh, the year before the pandemic, they were in a hotel that was under construction, and half the rooms were blocked off with painter's tape and drop cloth. So it was like living in The Shining. <laughs> but I, I've been to every L.I. Who but one. And okay. I've gotten a few guests for this podcast from L.I. Who. Well, that's cool. But their dealer's room, especially the last couple of years where they've been a smaller uh, COVID sure. safety con with a capped attendance, their dealer's room is not quite the spectacle that Galley is. So you don't have yeah. somebody with, you know, 400 books laid out on the table. And I've got to pick out the one that I don't own already. Not quite the same dealer's room experience. All credit to L.I. Who for putting on a great con, but I don't go there for the books. Yep, I can see that. Um, I went to, I must, I'm sure we've hung out at L.I. Who. I, I went to, I believe I went to four of the first five, but they've put it so close to Chicago TARDIS now that I have to make that decision, and I live in Minnesota, and it's just easier for me to get to Chicago. It's easier to you to, for you to get to L.I. Who. Well, this year, L.I. Who is going to be Megalos-themed, and it's going to be capped at 500 attendees. Next year, it's going to go back to being a full-size con, I think at the original hotel and not the smaller one they're at now. And at that point, maybe the dealer's room will be galley-sized. Maybe we can get Dale Santos and his 500 books out to L.I. Who to uh, peddle his wares. (laughs) Nice. That'd be nice. So if you were only reading the Pinnacles and you were getting the same six books checked out of the library over and over again, did you ever get to the point where you had the entire novelization collection or were the books kind of secondary for you? Uh, the books were definitely secondary for me. Um, I have collected some as an adult, you know, over the years, but um, I've never gotten to that sort of breakthrough point where I'd actually document what I have so I can make sure I don't buy doubles. Um, and then during the, the, uh, sort of riots that took place during the aftermath of the George Floyd, uh, incident in Minneapolis, my favorite bookstore was burned to the ground. So my, the place where I would buy all my novelizations is gone. What a downer. I don't, I, I should have just said they closed it or something. Yeah. This got into a dark place in a hurry. Went to a dark place. Uh, Well, for the sake of my audience, we are not going to discuss Kyle Rittenhouse. We'll just get back to the uh, (laughs) happier Doctor Who topics and not the more bizarre bits of Americana that have come out of uh, that. Uh, I mean, for me, obviously, the novelizations were, you know, my salary at age 11, 12, 13. So I ended up, I know I got my final novelization at Visions in Chicago, probably in 96. So I got, I think the last two that I didn't own were Power of Kroll and Horror of Fang Rock. So I'm sitting there in the hotel lobby at 11 p.m. while everyone else is at room parties reading the Power of Kroll novelization. <laughs> because, I mean, for me, that was a bigger occasion to party than you know being in the same room as 40 Doctor Who fans. Sure, sure. Um, and then I had to replace a couple. The binding on some of those targets was notoriously weak, right? So my copies right. of Claws of Axos and Dalek Invasion of Earth both fell apart in the mid-80s. So for a while, I had the I had the book covers, sort of, sort of like as a folder, and I would staple the pages into episode chunks. So I had four stapled together episodes for Claws and six for Dalek Invasion of Earth. Bearing in mind that I hadn't always seen the episodic version of the show, so I didn't always know where the cliffhangers went. Okay. 
I ended up replacing those at cons in the late 90s. Uh, and then, obviously now, you have the newer targets that are coming out in paperback. So I have I have them all as ebooks, and then I have most of them as uh, new targets, although it's not quite the same, not the same vibe for me. And I'm trying now to replace, with the original cover art, a lot of my 80s JNT edition novelizations because he obviously had his decree when he was the the show's producer he said the novelizations cannot have a past doctor on the cover so you have this whole run of Troughton and Pertwee novelizations reprinted from their original covers to make sure that the doctor is not on them which is very confusing when you're buying the enemy of the world because it has Giles Kent and Astrid and you're like, who are these people? Where's Jamie? Where's Victoria? Is that supposed to be Salamander? No, Salamander's a replica of the Doctor. How does this work? Well, I was going to say, you could have Troughton on the cover and still not have a past Doctor on there. But uh, JNT was too clever for that, for that yeah, game. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And of course, you don't even know that it's Giles Kent. I thought it was the character played by Christopher Burgess, Swan, the guy who was responsible for setting off the volcanoes. It wasn't until I actually saw the surviving episode three of enemy of the world in the nineties that I realized who those guys were supposed to be on the cover. Okay. I thought you were going to say it wasn't until 2013 that you saw it. No, I actually saw the surviving episode three on the Troughton years VHS in the mid nineties. Okay. Okay. So what I'm doing is trying to replace some of the reprints that took the doctor off the cover. So at this Gallifrey just passed, I was able to buy the original edition of terror of the autons which has, you know, the master on the front cover rather than the 80s edition of Terror of the Autons, which is just, you know, a gigantic octopus with an eye yeah. looking out at the camera. You, yeah, it doesn't have Anthony Ainley on it. Uh. That's a good choice. You know, have 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 not, you know, have to have the wrong master on the cover. Why not? And include one sentence in it, just like the pinnacles that explains, I don't know. That he looks just like Nissa's dad, and nobody has any idea what's going on. Or you have Missy, and you change every single pronoun in the book <laughs> to reflect the Missy master. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. So when you and I were at Galley, you and I and Barsky are all sitting at lunch, having conversations that are best not um, discussed <laughs> on, a, on a polite family show. But we were dividing up which episodes you guys were going to appear on. And Barsky, of course, was here a couple of weeks ago. And he was talking about Revenge of the Cybermen. You were very enthusiastic for the web fear. So, excluding the influence of alcohol, which may or may not have been consumed in abundance at that meal, how did you arrive at Web of Fear? And had you ever read it before? So, all right, you you kind of anticipate me. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean a little bit on the influence of alcohol here, but I don't believe <laughs> I had I had read it before. But I was I was uh, eager to read it uh, because it's kind of an action story, right? It's 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 there are several episodes of the uh, series that go by or the serial that go by that um, you know there's not a lot of dialogue in it. It's all uh, what do you call that that well, what's the song? This is the the song the Cyberman song plays uh, space invade whatever it's called space invasion. What's it called? Space Adventure, because space, space invaders adventure. is the right. Space invaders is the arcade game that you and I put a lot of quarters <laughs> into in the early eighties. That's right. Space yeah. adventure is the uh, Cyberman slash Yeti theme. Yeah, 
And uh, and so I was just eager to read it. It's, it was an excuse to read this book, basically. And uh, yeah, I wasn't disappointed. Um, I, I like the way Dix describes the action, actually. I feel like uh, when I'm reading it, Terrence likes likes Doctor Who. You know what I mean? Like, I don't always understand what's going on when I watched it. Watch Web of Fear. It's it it it's 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 a lot of runaround, right? It's a it's a six episode uh, story that probably could have been wrapped up in two. You know, there's not a lot of story there. There's a lot of uh, uh, one guy runs out the door to go down this tunnel and then suddenly some piece of news to uh comes along and the other guy oh my god i have to run down that tunnel and they, <laughs> you know everybody's running around all over the place all the time and when you're watching it it can be when you're watching it all in one big chunk i don't know i'm kind of going off on the on the episodes now but you remember when it was when when we finally got them in 2013 um that's why i think that's why I think Web of Fear, one of the reasons why I think Web of Fear suffered um, from being recovered, <laughs> if that's a thing, is that it is a lot of runaround. And I wanted to I wanted to see how Terrence would novelize it. And, and that was it, one of the things I like about it. In all fairness to the production team, when they had been demoted from TV Center into Lime Grove D, there's not a whole lot that you can do in Lime Groove D except for have long circular dialogue scenes and then short corridors because the, the space was, you know, about the size of the dining room that I'm recording in right now, about the size of your flat panel TV behind you. So there's not <laughs> a lot of room and there was no budget for, you know, uh, thousands of actors or the fact that Douglas Campbell was able to do what he did, especially with the, Episode four, Massacre on Location. That really grabbed me as one of my favorite individual episodes of the 60s. But you're right. The rest of it is kind of marking time, not because the writers didn't know what they were doing, not because they said, we want to make sure that audiences are bored 50 years from now when these tapes are discovered in Nigeria. They were doing the best they could with a minuscule budget and an even smaller studio. Terrence has the task of putting all this into a 120-page book uh, with, uh, you know, it's got smallish print and small margins, but it still fits into 120 pages. So he has to condense, he has to play out the atmospheric stuff. Like the first episode is 30 pages of text. Episode four, which is so dramatic on TV, is only 15 pages of text. So he does a lot of cutting and slicing and dicing. So... Had you seen the surviving episode one of the Web of Fear before 2013, or was that the first time you saw it full stop? No, I did the, uh, I believe it's still called The Pilgrimage. I did The Pilgrimage, where you watch every episode, either in uh, existing form or some other form, uh, before Rose premiered in 2005. So when when... If you remember 2003, they announced that the show was coming back. That was when right. I started my pilgrimage. And I watched every existing episode and then all the recons because there was no such thing as an animated Doctor Who episode back then. Um, and that's um, that's one of one of the other things that, that um, 
that I think makes the uh, existing episodes suffer. Well, there's a couple of things that make them suffer. Number one, Enemy of the World blew everybody away. Nobody expected that to be as good as it was. And Absolutely. you have to watch it in order because that's who we are. That's what we do. We're nerds, and you're not going to watch Web of Fear episode two before Enemy of the World. You know, So we all watched Enemy of the World on that day. I believe it was October. I'm going to guess October 9th of 2013. It was somewhere around that. Um, the the other thing that makes it suffer is that episode one of Web of Fear that we already had and had had for decades um, is brilliant. It's beautiful and it's atmospheric and it really sets up the story. It's it's a it's a common thing to say about Doctor Who stories, but episode one's usually good, right? Even if you remember Flux, which I'm not a huge fan of overall. Episode one's great. You're thrilled. You can't wait to see episode two. And so Web of Fear, that's where it, uh, that, that's the other f- sort of failing of it is that episode one, it, it's even it's even um, shadowy and and dark and mysterious. There's like actual like horror in it. There's yeah. flickering torches. The museum bit is shot at Ealing, so it's done on film. It is like watching a feature film. Yeah. You don't get to the endless corridor chases until much deeper into the story. And to their credit, the corridor, the uh, the tunnels look great. They uh, the obvious story is that the uh, they asked for permission to film in the under London Underground, didn't get permission, and at least the way the tale is told. Once it, they aired the episodes, uh, they got a call from the London Underground saying, hey, we told you you couldn't film down here. And <laughs> I, I would assume their their response would be, D- do you think that uh, Fraser Hines is eight feet tall? Because can't you tell these are tiny <laughs> little tunnels? When you watch it now, I think, yeah, they really did a great job, but they're very much not to scale. They went to the trouble to actually take real subway ads and duplicate them so yeah. as you're watching episode six there's literally an ad for in the heat of the night although they covered up the name of the film and replaced it with blockbusters whatever that means i didn't so you're know looking, okay you're wow. looking at uh royce you're looking at uh rod steiger and Sidney poitier okay as a subway ad in web of fear which is a neat bit of a crossover between doctor who and the real world now, and it, I'm showing and it, off. That's the it sets that story at a very specific time period, which is problematic for this era, right? If we're going to do unit dating, this probably True. shouldn't be 1968, but we can we can overlook that. As a baseball fan, I nearly instead of Rod Steiger, I nearly said Roy Steiger, who was a shortstop for the New York Mets in the late 70s. That's embarrassing. <laughs> okay. Roy Steiger, the baseball player, was not quite the baseball equivalent of Rod. St- uh, Steiger, the actor. Okay, good to know. I don't. I'm not up on my Mets. I'm a. I'm a former Twins fan. Well, now that the designated hitter is in the National League, I'm pretty much a former Mets fan. The Mets had a no hitter last night, and I couldn't care less anymore. That's how much I've fallen away from the sport. <laughs> when second no hitter in history. This is. This is the. This is news to me. This is how far I've. I've left baseball behind when did the national league get the designated hitter rule this, this month is it, we are recording this on the 30th of april and this is the end of the first month of the designated hitter in the national league oh wow 
That's, and of course, wow. yeah, the Mets had a five pitcher no hitter last night. They had five pitchers go nine innings uh, to get a no hitter. Wow. Which, you know, anyway, uh, getting us back <laughs> away from the tragedy of the national league, caving into the designated hitter and going back to Dr. Who, isn't it funny that web of fear and enemy of the world had reputations go completely in the opposite direction because of Philip Morris, because for years, all we had was part one of web, which is cinematic and mysterious and spooky. And all we had was part three of enemy, which was the cost saving episode with a security carter and the kitchen. Aren't they in a kitchen? Yeah. The, the, uh, there's, there's, there's Griff, the Australian cook who is, uh, complaining, yeah. Wonderful character, but nothing to do with the plot and does not appear in any of the other five episodes. And then the stories are discovered and we all watch Enemy of the World Part 1 first. And that has helicopters and it has hovercraft and it has Patrick Troughton belly flopping into the ocean. And it's got this great cliffhanger where Troughton goes into another room and comes out as Salamander. Whereas when Web of Fear comes out, what you see is basically two hours of extras playing soldiers running up and down the same stretch of train track. Yeah. And not only that, um, if, if, if someone told you they were going to return enemy of the world and web, which I guess someone did tell me they were going to do that, but that's another story. Um, to find out that episode three is missing in itself is a bit of a disappointment because people consider that a very historic episode where we first meet the brigadier, uh, the brigadier, who in this one is called Colonel Brigadier. I believe that's his name. Um, uh, yes, Colonel yes, Colonel Brigadier. Colonel Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart. Um, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart, yes. I uh, forgot the Gordon. I, I knew How I'd could you forget the Gordon? Oh, Bill, come on. <laughs> I know, I blew it. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, even that, like, and that, and I think it's kind of funny that the one that that's missing, at least on the DVD, uh, was represented essentially as a slideshow because that's what a reconstruction is uh, for the most part before the animated episodes came out. And in that episode, the characters actually sit around and watch a slideshow. So we're watching a slideshow of the characters watching a slideshow. Yeah, the, the, the Web of Fear is, is, yeah, it's amazing how disappointing it turned out to be. The thing about that is, though, I say that, and that makes it sound like I don't like it. It was just disappointing because Web of Fear was always considered a great classic. Um, and for good reason. I mean, you, you, the Yeti in the previous story, so the, they had premiered, I assume you've already done an episode on uh, Abominable, Abominable Snowman. Yeah, so I had John Blum and we were talking about Abominable Snowman and some of the unfortunate uh, racial attitudes demonstrated in that story. Yeah, well, we don't get off scot-free here at Web of Fear either. Well, in the novelization we do, because Terrence was very good at taking anti-Semitism out of the TV episodes and taking them away from the novelizations. He did it here by getting rid of Julius Silverstein, and then he does it again in Talons of Wang Chiang, which will be an episode for a later date. Okay. And Terrence so, also, do you well, recall... Well, I would say he's he softened it, right? Because it's, the character's name is still Emil Julius... And he's basically the same character, but he's described differently. Right. He's Central European rather than Eastern. And Emil Julius, that could be, you know, just a generic European name. It's not as obvious as Silverstein. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's good. And there's also the character of Evans, who was the comedy Welshman on TV. Terrence goes yeah. out of his way to soften up both Evans and the Welshman. The Brigadier getting a line about, the Welsh are usually such brave soldiers. Yes. Yeah. He does it with one line, but it, it's a good line. Yeah. I agree. So you see Webb in 2013, and your reaction is faint disappointment, especially coming so soon after Enemy of the World. And now you read the book for the first time in 2022. Short book. How long did it take you to read? Uh, it went a lot quicker than I expected. So I went on vacation. I just got back from uh, vacation. I went to Hawaii. And, um, you know, I started reading it on the plane. And I think within a day I had gotten through it. I really didn't realize that it was that short of read. So, um, but also I... It's very enjoyable. I really like this book. So um, that makes it go quicker. Yeah. Maybe two, three days. I mean, I was going to say, with a 10-hour flight coming back from... And congratulations, by the way, for dropping Hawaii into the conversation so nonchalantly. <laughs> so nonchalant. That is the trip of a lifetime for most people. You drop it off as a casual... You said I'm going to Hawaii with all the verve and vigor that I would say, yeah, I'm going to Evansville for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd never been though. Um, yeah, so I I'd never been to Hawaii. I I what I don't what I didn't realize was that it was be it would be almost like an international trip. So like I'm still suffering from jet lag, and I've been home for three days. It's a long flight because it's another 3,000 mm -hmm. miles again from San Francisco. And I guess you, it's 2,000 miles to Frisco and then another 3,000 across the Pacific to get to uh, the Hawaiian Islands. Yep, exactly. We went through L.A., but same thing. Yeah, we went through the infamous LAX airport. I did not stop at the Marriott, but yeah. <sighs> you, you, didn't do, you, you didn't try and win LobbyCon early? <laughs> no, not this time. So um, I'm surprised that you didn't have the entire book wrapped up on on the flight back. Although I guess you were probably I, asleep for most of the flight. I, I got to be honest. There was some sleeping, and there was some. Uh, we were trying to get caught up on Better Call Saul. We got I got some. I got some stuff we got to do. Oh, Better Call Saul is my show. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit elevated from real life, but a lot of the experiences that Jimmy and Kim have on that show are ripped from identical instances that I have had in my own life. And it's like watching my life on TV, but with the cartel. Yeah, <laughs> not the cartel parts. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. I have done legal work for some very, very shady people. And, and I have come across, you know, some massive criminal enterprises. However, I have never had to trek through the desert and survive by drinking my own urine. And I hope that isn't a spoiler for you. <laughs> no, no, we're we're past that one. Yeah, and, but don't spoil this week's. We're still not on that one yet. Ah, uh, okay. I I, I am not going to spoil this week's, but it is. Why don't you drop what you're doing? We'll oh, okay. watch that. I'll just vamp in the background for an hour and ten minutes, <laughs> and you can come back and we can discuss. Okay. That'll go at the end of our 244 episode Web of Fear Novelization <laughs> Audiobook Minute podcast. There you go. Perfect. So. I'm pretty sure that we fell off topic rather heavily. Oh, yes, getting back to the book. The so book. there's several key changes between the TV episodes and the book. So obviously Terrence 
takes Julius Silverstein and makes him less anti-Semitic. Yep. Takes Evans and makes him less of a comedy dope. He also adds a lot of myth-making material because he's writing in 1976, right? So Web of Fear is only eight years old. For comparison's sake, the last episode of Breaking Bad is nine years old. So the finale right. of Breaking Bad... Ba- yeah. I'll say that again. The finale of Breaking Bad is older now as we're in the final season of Better Call Saul than Web of Fear was when Terrence sat down to write the novelization. But at this point, in 1976, he is already aware that the Brigadier is the guest character in Doctor Who. He is Doctor Who's defining guest role. And what does he do in the novelization to make it clear that bringing the Brigadier in for the first time is a huge, huge deal? Well, I mean, he just completely states it outright. It's it's a little off-putting, to be honest. It's uh, he's, he, he describes when they meet as being the equivalent of when uh, uh, Stanley Stanley meets Living Livingston. It's uh, it's 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 too much, and it takes me out to be honest. Um, that change I could do without. But I I mean I guess I get why he's doing it. I think he's doing it for. I feel like it's two reasons. It's because, like you said, that time period. Um, uh, people will have already met the brigadier and he wants to make sure that it's clear that this is the same guy, I guess, um, that he spent, I guess, five years roughly on earth with. Um, but I also think that there's a certain <laughs> ego component to it because that's Terrence's era, right? That's when True. Terrence was writing the show. So I think he's, he's kind of elevating the importance of the brigadier as a character. Either way, I don't mind. I don't mind that he did it. I just don't, I guess I do mind that he did it because it's weird to be reading a book and then all of a sudden, you know, have some, have them. He He's basically saying in a later story, some amazing stuff is going to happen. And that's just not a really good storytelling technique, especially in this one, because there's theoretically a mystery about who, which character, one of the characters mysteriously is working with the intelligence and, on TV, at least, you have to try and figure out who that is. Um, you in this in this example, he's just removed what the main what I would consider to be the main culprit or the main guest that you would have while watching it. Terrence in the book spends a lot of time casting suspicion on Harold Chorley, who's basically window dressing in a side character. He never. Gives I can you see any... where you might think it's Chorley when you watch the show. But yeah, just because he disappears. That's like right. the only reason. But there's also a bit in the novelization where Chorley is looking at a map and he's alone in the room and his eyes narrow in concentration. And Terrence ends the section right there. So it's easy to believe that he's saying, ah, this is your bad. This is the pullback. This is the bad guy. This is the big reveal. Yeah. 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 And then, well, and then he does the, he has, you know, spoilers for people who haven't seen the episode or read the book. But it's Arnold. That's the actual guy. What? He has him look. Yeah. Wait, sorry. wait. Arnold's a bad you guy? You haven't gotten what? that far? Yeah. No, it's no. amazing. It's Spoilers. very disappointing. Very disappointing. Um, I don't know. What we end up with is a character I don't know that well or another character I don't know that well. And it's it turns out to be Arnold. And it's not a big surprise in the TV series either. I mean, we, we watch it now with that. We already now watch it with that. Um, understanding we know who the brigadier is we know it ain't him um 
uh, which is, you know, odd because it could be theoretically it could be Jamie. We don't know. Like theoretically, it could be anybody, especially in the book, because in the book, uh, the doctor specifically spells out that when Arnold's not in control of the intelligence, he's just going about his normal life. Right. Which has got to be an odd way to live your life. Do you, does he just black out, I guess, periodically? Of course, other characters black out. The Doctor blacks out after the explosion in the book, too. Maybe I, maybe Terrence is prone to blackouts. Well, he did like his uh, alcohol. Yep. But God bless him. So do many of us. Uh, so, what was I going to say? In defense of Terrence mythologizing the Brigadier, though... This book comes out as the 24th book in what is basically a monthly series at this point. And there had already been several unit-era Brigadier novelizations out. So anybody who buys this book in July 1976 is already well aware from the last two and a half years' worth of targets that the Brigadier is a major character. So you want to establish in the book that this is the origin story for a guy who's been in most of the novelizations thus far. That's pretty significant, I think. And as another point, obviously that whole scene that Terrence puts in is not on television because the doctor and the colonel meet off screen. Terrence, in part two, adds a scene where the characters meet for the first time, which he invents out of whole cloth. You got to give him credit for that. Normally he's adapting the camera script. Here he just creates his own scene because he wants to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Uh, again, it, it's it's to establish that important. Now that part of it, I I don't mind at all because I think it's it's I I haven't seen the episode right. I have that's the one that's missing, so I can't say for sure. But it seems like it works a little better in the novelization, and I think a lot of things work a lot better in the novelization. There are a lot of dialogue scenes where there's a lot of people doing back and forth that Terrence summarizes very quickly and moves on. So I don't know. I think I think he probably did the right thing. Ultimately, I just thought the whole I mean, at the end of the book, he mentions uh, the brigadier says he's going to talk to the to the home office or whoever he's going to. We should establish a task force. I mean, he kind of plays it up a bit. And I'll tell you, as, as a as, as a hardcore nerdy fan, when I first saw Remembrance of the Daleks, which implies that unit was born out of the countermeasures group. And it implies that uh, Chunky Gilmore is the original founder of unit. <laughs> I was annoyed and I thought it was a pointless retcon because I believed what I read in web of fear in the, in the epilogue where the brigadier pitches the idea and basically Terrence puts it all on him. Obviously the UN is not going to be created because one British army colonel has the idea. Obviously it's got to be, uh, you know, that wouldn't be where the idea comes from in real life. But Terrence puts that into the book because it's very important to him. And then when you go back and try and tell the true story, uh, obviously the true story has to be more complicated. But I was so loyal to this book that I just believed that any other explanation for the origin of the unit had to be wrong. So I spent much of my fandom hating on Remembrance of the Daleks for that reason, because of one page in this book. And that's perhaps not a very good attitude to take through life. And I've come to realize that, and I don't do that anymore. But for several years, it annoyed me. Literally, seriously annoyed me. I get it. I mean, that's... I don't know. What age were you when you read Web of Fear, then? Probably 11 or 12. 
Yeah, that's absolutely the time and place to be establishing these kinds of uh, irrational, uh, I don't know. For me, it was Empire Strikes Back. I was, uh, I, I'm still, um, I'm still annoyed by Return of the Jedi because it doesn't, in my opinion, follow up on the the what was established by the Empire Strikes Back. So I totally get that. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about Torchwood being established? What a hundred years earlier? <laughs> uh, well, how I feel about Torchwood would be it would be a whole other podcast and would probably end with a lot of incoherent ranting. Yes. I will say, though, that I came to the epiphany recently that all nine Star Wars movies, not counting uh, Rogue One and, and Solo, of all nine movies, the whole of Star Wars is the 20-minute run, the trench run on the Death Star. That is Star Wars. Everything else doesn't count. You could oh. eliminate everything but those 20 minutes, and you would have the greatest 20 minutes in the history of cinema. Everything else is unnecessary. Are you a car guy? You like cars? I am a New York City kid. I am a mass transit guy. I am a subway guy. Not a car person at all. Interesting. Yeah, I've never understood why 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 that. I even okay. So I saw Star Wars in the theater as a little kid, and I and I never really liked that trench trench run sequence as much as everybody else. I obviously love it, but I don't I don't love it as much as other people. I liked. I was more. I guess I don't know what it says about me as a seven-year-old. I liked when uh, when Luke met Han Solo in the bar. Like hanging out in the bar seemed like the coolest part of Star Wars. To me. Uh, yeah, when, when you and I and Barsky were having lunch at Galley, we should have just reenacted the whole most Eisley sequence. <laughs> I think we could have done it. Yeah. Maybe next year. I, I mean, Star Wars Episode Four, which was. It was just Star Wars when we were kids. It became Episode Four later. That is the perfect movie. There is not a wasted shot in that movie. There is not a boring moment in those two hours. Come to find out, George Lucas's wife fired him from the picture, locked herself <laughs> and a few other editors in a room, brought in Harry Shearer to do voiceovers, and just yeah, made right. that movie out of whole cloth, throwing out Lucas's script and remaking the movie. That's why it's perfect. Empire Strikes Back is also nearly perfect because Lucas isn't there. It's written and directed by somebody else. Yeah. Return of the Jedi is great when I'm, you know, 10 years old and I'm seeing it on the last day of school, which is when I saw it. And you got all this okay. myth-making stuff about Darth Vader being redeemed. Oh, that's why it's called Return of the Jedi because Anakin returns from the dark side. It's wonderful. And then you see Phantom Menace and then you see Attack of the Clones and then you watch Revenge of the Sith and you say... I've been waiting 22 years between Empire between between Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith. I could have made a better movie in those 22 years <laughs> with you know uh, a lump of charcoal and a piece of butcher's paper. I could have written a better <laughs> script than this. Yeah. And then of course the uh, sequel trilogy has its good moments, and I don't want to criticize the sequel trilogy because that is the province of the alt right, complaining about Asian characters in Star Wars. Yeah, totally. I think the sequel trilogy is worthy, and if there hadn't been a Star Wars to measure up to and imitate in so many instances, it would have been a really, really good trilogy. However, when it comes down to it, Star Wars is the first two movies alone, and when it comes mm -hmm. down to that, the trench run is 90% of those two movies, and that's my contrary take on Star Wars. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> we're, uh, we're not so far off. Um Star Wars ended in 1980. I shouldn't say that. There's some good stuff. Well, 
there's also that whole you could line up Doctor Who fan by when does Doctor Who end? There's a lot of folks for whom it ends with season 17. There's a lot of folks for whom it ends at Caves of Androzani, for whom it ends with survival. A lot of folks for whom it ends with uh, Twice Upon a Time for obvious reasons. Wow, that's a, that's a really interesting point because I told you I did the pilgrimage, right? Right. Uh, and I made it through all of Classic Who prior to the premiere of Rose in March of 2005. Well, I tried to do it again after that. I can't remember when. That's so long ago. I can't even remember. Maybe 10 years ago. And I stopped at Megalos. So apparently I'm one of these, uh, it ends at 17. Because when when Na- John Nathan Turner comes in, it, it really, the tone of it changes so dramatically. I found it kind of exhausting. I mean, for me, season 18 is Doctor Who's peak. And for me, Legopolis is the greatest book of all time. When you ask oh, look, somebody, uh, yeah. when you ask somebody, what is the greatest book of all time? David Copperfield. Um, <laughs> from here to eternity. Uh, um, the Bible. You know, the Bible, although, you know, different people have no. different Bibles. Or yeah, the Brothers true. Karamazov or uh, Hamlet. For me, the greatest book of all time is Legopolis by Christopher Hamilton Bidmead. Christopher Hamilton Bidmead, yes. Got to get his full name in there. Yeah, oh yeah, he would he would appreciate that. So, Web of Fear is a book that I love, and when you hear the full podcast, which includes my review of the book coming up after this conversation, I was very much into the book as a kid. Obviously, it colored my fandom because I was angry at Remembrance of the Daleks on behalf of this book. That shows you how seriously I took this book as a kid. Reading it as a grown-up, I am disappointed that part four in the book is not quite as vivid and dramatic and terrifying as it is on TV because you don't have Douglas Canfield directing. You don't have the Space Invaders music, as somebody once said. And it's only Well, you also 15. don't have – I'm sorry to interrupt, but you also don't have the, big, the Brigadier talking about it afterwards, and, and he kind of panics a little bit. Right. right in the TV series, he's he. That's where he loses it. As is at the end of episode four, yeah. And he wants to find the TARDIS and fly far, far away, which is an interesting yeah. take on the. You don't get that take on the Brigadier again until Inferno, when you have the alt evil Brigadier coming in from another universe, right? Also right. panicking, trying to steal yeah. the TARDIS. Yeah. So uh, we are coming to the end of this conversation because we are filming this in real time and I have to be somewhere else in about an hour. (laughs) I want to quickly play 20 questions with you. You've heard the podcast. You know the rules. I have selected randomly from randomizer.net one Doctor Who story from the entirety of 1963 to 1920. Sorry, from 1963 to 2022. You have 20 questions, yes or no, to guess the story. Oh my God! So uh, I didn't even think about this. Oh, I have to come up with questions. Okay. Um, are, are any are there any limits? Can I ask a? Um, it has to be uh, a yes or no question. That's your only limit. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, is it in black and white? No, it is not. Okay, question that's, two. That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay, that helps. Um, is uh is um. Was it made in the 20th century? No, it was not. Okay. See, right. now you've ruled out 26 seasons. See, I'm going to beat Graham's record. Um, um, shoot. Question um, three. <laughs> is, uh, does the story feature the Daleks? Yes, it does. Hmm. 
I wish that narrowed it down more. Uh, shoot. Uh, does the story feature the Cybermen? No. Okay, shoot. Um, um, hmm. Does the Doctor have one companion in the story? Yes. Yes, he does. One companion. Question six. You have a limited window to beat Graham Burke's record for fewest questions uh, identifying a story. He got it in eight. You are now at question six. You are very close to being the all-time record holder. I mean, you say I'm close. Okay, so... Um, it features the Daleks. He has and one, one companion. companion. Um, does the story take place on Earth? Yes, it does. Question seven. This is your last chance to be the undisputed king of 20 questions. Goodness. Um, so when Graham got it on the eighth question, did he ask, is it this episode or whatever? Is that his last question? Yes. Okay. I don't... All right. Is the story Dalek? The story is Dalek. Ding, ding, ding. We have, for a guy who didn't know what 20 questions was a minute ago, you are now the undisputed king of 20 questions on Doctor Who literature. Excellent. Excellent. I am so going to rub this in. All right. So where can we find you online? And how many more years will Frankenstein Minute run? (laughs) If someone discovers this podcast in 2029, will Frankenstein Minute still be running? I think so. Uh, It might not be by then. I think we decided it was going to be 11 years or something, depending on whether or not we decided to do. All right. So the, the, the original series is Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, uh, um, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. And of course, we're going to include Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, meet Frankenstein. Of course. Uh, the question is, do we include... Uh, young Frankenstein, and my guess is by then we'll be so old that uh, we won't even know what we're doing at that point anyway. But you Mel can find Brooks us, is you, 94 you, years old and still going strong. You could probably have him as still, a guest on your show. He's Yeah, he's still like, he, he's got projects in development. That guy is amazing. You know, he um, and I are both from Brooklyn. My daughter has the same birthday as Mel Brooks. This is a Mel Brooks house. This is a Mel Brooks house. Yeah. Well, my favorite Mel Brooks movie is Young Frankenstein. Um, so I probably we'll probably end up doing that one too. And by that point it'll be about twenty twenty nine, I think. We started in twenty eighteen, so somewhere around there. So if you And discovering... where can where can people find us? We're on YouTube, we're on all the usual places. Terrific. And obviously uh, if you discover this podcast late and it's 2026, 2027, you can still find the Frankenstein Minute going strong on the usual places. We hope Bill, so. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. We'll have you back real soon. Have a great night. You too. Thanks for having me. Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. Written by Terence Dix, televised as The Web of Fear, teleplay by Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln, televised in February and March 1968, published in August 1976. Forty years the Yeti had been quiet, collector's item in a museum. Then without warning it awoke and savagely murdered. At about the same time, patches of mist began to appear in central London, 
people who lingered any time in the mist were found dead, their faces smothered in cobwebs. The cobwebs seeped down, penetrating the underground system. Slowly it spread. Then the eddy reappeared, not just one, but hordes, roaming the misty streets and cobweb tunnels, killing everyone in their path. Central London was gripped tight in a web of fear. That's the back cover blurb to my 1984 reprint. If you were to ask me as a kid, ages 11 or 12, what was my favorite Terrence Dix novelization, the answer would vary depending on the day, but on many days that answer might well have been Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. That answer was based on a bunch of factors. The episode status is a lost story, the glowing write-up of the episode and the Jeremy Bentham chapter of Peter Haining's Doctor Who, A Celebration, and the base under siege plot, the perfect story to act out while home alone in the living room of our family home, which at the time, thanks to suburban flight and mid-1980s fleeting affluence, was probably bigger than Lion Grove Studio D. It was a long time between first reading the book, which must have been 1985, and getting to see the surviving episode two of the story, which for me would have been in early 1993, when I bought the Troughton Years VHS tape as a sophomore in college and watched it on the dorm TV. Yes, back then, dorms had a single TV, much to the confusion of my classmates. The seven or eight year gap between reading the book and watching the surviving episode two in front of a room full of puzzled 19-year-olds, was an earth-shattering gap, bringing me 250 miles from home to college, long past the moment where my family lost their affluence. And it was even longer than that, another 17 and a half years between that first watch of episode 2 and when I finally watched the blurry reconstruction of the other five episodes. That would have been the summer or fall of 2010, when my kid was an infant, Of course, she's now as old as I was when I first got addicted to Doctor Who in the first place, and I was looking for something to do while bottle-feeding her at early o'clock in the morning before going to work. I watched most of the reconstructed Trouton episodes by Telesnap that summer or fall. Here's excerpts of what I said about the process for Stacey Smith's Doctor Who Ratings Guide. I wrote, in late 2010, Only episode one of The Web of Fear exists in full in the BBC archives. In reconstructed format, four of the five missing episodes are crashing bores. Partly this is because loose cannon never tackled the story, so the available reconstructions lack their creativity. But more importantly, this is the fault of Douglas Camfield. Simply put, the surviving episode one is the best remaining intact episode of season five. We all had high hopes for the Tomb of the Cybermen, but the choices made during the production of that story have not aged well. However, what Dougie Camfield did with Web of Fear remains atmospheric and scary, even today. The opening scene, the TARDIS in crisis, following on from the end of Enemy of the World, is directed in such a way that you would think the console room set was actually built to pitch and yaw, instead of just having three actors rolling themselves about a not very sturdy set. The following scene in the museum, featuring a reanimated and angrier-looking yeti, last seen all cute and fuzzy in The Abominable Snowman, is shockingly well-directed, evidently on film in an expensive-looking set. Only the too-quick cut from the shot of the dead newsagent and the too-fast fade to black from the Doctor Blows Up cliffhanger signify that the story was made with the 1960s audience in mind rather than a contemporary one. And then there's episode four, 
Terence Dix in his novelization glossed over it, writing it up in just 15 pages, compared to the positively atmospheric 30 pages he lavished on episode one. Just about all of the supporting cast is killed off in a four-page stretch with relatively little emotion. On TV, however, the Yeti massacre of the troops fills up a substantial chunk of the 25-minute runtime, with the script spreading the tension across three separate locations. A few seconds of surviving censor clips show the Yeti killing off Lethbridge Stewart's troops on location, and this confirms, along with episode one, that Camfield just directed the heck out of the story. Finally, in the cliffhanger, it turns out that Professor Travers, the good guy in The Abominable Snowman, and the beginning of this story, is possessed by the intelligence. Episode 4 is thus downbeat in a way that early Who episodes really hadn't been before. Even with no other live footage from the other death scenes, the power of the scripting shines through, even in the reconstructions. Another letdown is the imperialistic attempt at cultural diversity, as we get a whiny and greedy Jewish museum curator called Julia Silverstein in the opening scenes. In later episodes, comic relief is served by Private Evans, a cowardly Welsh soldier prone to acts of desertion. In the novelization, Dix attempts to salvage both of these characters by de-ethnicizing the curator's name to Emil Julius, and adding in a line from Lethbridge Stewart's perspective about how, apart from Evans, the Welsh usually make such brave soldiers. It's hard to rate the overall quality of the Web of Fear, since most of the reconstructed episodes lag far behind the excellence of the surviving opening act, and as Dix's 120-page novelization can't really capture the scare factor of the coordinated Yeti attacks in episode 4. Still, with Campfield as director, and the few surviving moments looking so crisp, it's fair to say that the loss of Web of Fear is a pretty big blow to the BBC archives. That's what I wrote in 2010. Well, three years later, a missing episodes hunter, who I'm sure would want us to mention his name, went ahead and found the Web of Fear. Well, parts of it. So on literally my 40th birthday, I was able to watch the entire story in one go apart from episode 3. And boy, was I underestimating for the ratings guide just how great episode 4 actually is. After seeing it live in 2013, I gotta say it's one of the most powerful individual episodes of 1960s Who. Right up there with Unearthly Child 1, Dalek's Master Plan 12, The Massacre 4, Mythmakers 4, Gunfighters 1, and no, I'm not kidding, Evil of the Daleks Part 7, and War Games Episode 10. So now, with all that in hindsight, I want to take a look at the book line by line, at least comparing Episodes 1 and Episode 4. We have advantages that Terrence Dix did not have in 1976. We have five of the six surviving episodes. I do not have the animated version of Web of Fear Part 3 yet, as I have yet to buy the latest DVD release. I hope to rectify that soon. Terrence had none of that. He was likely working from shooting scripts and set photos. So let's read out some passages, first from episode one and then episode four, and we'll compare. The huge furry monster reared up as if to strike. Well over seven feet tall, its immensely broad body made it seem squat and lumpy. It had the huge hands of a gorilla, the savage yellow fangs and fierce red eyes of a grizzly bear. That's the opening. It's the close-up of a ferocious monster, and because Terence Dix is the writer, it does feature the word savage as an adjective. 
But then the author's camera pulls back, and we quickly find out we're in a museum, not in the middle of a Yeti attack. Julia Silverstein, such a big problem on TV, is what you would expect from the two authors who had also made their Tibetan characters sinister in The Abominable Snowmen, as John Blum and I discussed back in episode 10 of this podcast. Those same authors would later try and do a number on hippies and pacifists and the Dominators, but Terence comes to the rescue. The character is, as I said earlier, renamed Emil Julius. His voice is cultured with a Middle European accent. This occurs in the middle of material where Terence is retelling the story of Abominable Snowmen and explains what happens in between the two stories. Julius is a wealthy and eccentric collector with his own private museum. He'd offered to buy the Yeti for a handsome sum. Terence writes, dejected, discredited, almost penniless. Travers accepted the offer, an action he was to regret for the rest of his life. Terence also describes the incredible determination that turned Travers from a big-game hunter in the earlier story to a skilled electrical engineer in the sequel. Now, that made little sense on TV, kind of like how Sigourney Weaver went from a concert violinist in Ghostbusters to an art restorer in Ghostbusters 2. But Terence can fix that, and he can write the sentence, In 40 years, Travers would turn himself from discredited anthropologist into a world-famous scientist. His discoveries and inventions had made him rich and respected. This is a great example of Terence not just filling a plot hole, but decorating it, and trumpeting it, and turning someone else's incompetence into his own triumphant achievement. Terence also explains that the murder of Julius briefly casts suspicion upon Travers and his daughter, and explains how, quote, the story was driven from the headlines by an even stranger mystery. The backstory, just hinted at on TV, is explained in depth in Chapter 1, and Terence even gives us the episode title, Central London was gripped tight in a web of fear, dot, dot, dot. Episode 1 is so rich that it takes Terence up to the middle of Chapter 4 in a 12-chapter book to adapt it. In Chapter 2, the TARDIS crew turns up. We have the now familiar macro description of Patrick Troughton, quote, a small man with untidy black hair and a gentle humorous face. He wore baggy check trousers and a disreputable old frock coat. A wonderful description of Jamie. Largely to keep him occupied, the doctor had given Jamie one or two simple tasks concerned with the running of the TARDIS. The fact that Jamie was completely lacking in technological knowledge made him all the more determined to carry them out correctly. Victoria is also reintroduced, and here is wearing a jacket and slacks small enough to fit her, which is a very conservative and modest outfit compared to what Deborah Watling was given to wear on TV. Missing is the opening scene on television, the resolution to the cliffhanger to episode 6 of The Enemy of the World, which, by the way, is the only cliffhanger in Enemy in which the lives of the main cast are threatened. The book opens without that link. Later on, as we get to the Enemy of the World novelization, which comes out in a few years' time, we'll see if that cliffhanger matches up. Terence briefly explains the workings of the London Underground for the benefit of both the character Jamie and the international reader. Quote, Briefly, the Doctor explained the workings of London's underground railway system. Jamie was used to scientific marvels since he started traveling with the Doctor. To him, a train was like a spaceship, just another of the future wonders he took for granted. Victoria also gets POV as she, quote, realized the Doctor had already made his plan. As usual, he just hadn't bothered to tell them about it. Where we start to get a disconnect between the spirit of the script and the more cursory elements of the novelization comes in Chapter 3 
the proto-unit army personnel, so vivid on TV between episodes 1 and 4, get minimal characterization where the book needs to. Terence writes, The two soldiers carrying the full drum were Corporal Blake and Private Weems. The one with the nearly empty drum was a tough old sweat called Sergeant Arnold. That's largely the extent of their characterization. Arnold is a pretty majorly important character, even though he's a staff sergeant on TV and not major. Weems is the youngest and most nervous of the three. Arnold is a kindly man. He hated anyone to know it and always spoke with the ferocity of a drill sergeant on the barrack square. That's it. Two adjectives for Weems, youngest and nervous, a few sentences for Arnold, and nothing at all for Blake. Terence will often have to do this in the years to come, introduce three or four secondary characters in a single block of text. From this we learn a little about Arnold, a smidge about Weems, who's the first of the three to die, and nothing at all about Blake. The warmth of their TV characterizations doesn't quite come through. Blake's death in episode four will burn across your memory, but for book purposes, this is an efficient use of space when you only have 120 pages to adapt six episodes. As a footnote to that, I did see in Chapter 4 that Arnold has a tough and craggy set of features. Jack Wolgar's likeness appears on the original 1976 novelization cover, so if you happen to have that cover, I don't. You can do a quick comparison for yourself and determine if that was meant as a compliment. Harold Chorley, the TV episode's nasty, kind of right-wing shock journalist, is treated sardonically in the book, also introduced in Chapter 3, speaking in, quote, the deep, mellow tones he reserved for his professional moments. Terence describes him as an impressive-looking man with a stern, handsome face and a deep, melodious voice. He was also extremely photogenic. On television, he gave the impression of a sincere, wise, and responsible man. Unfortunately, his looks were deceptive. Chorley was weak, vain, and in reality, rather stupid. But appearances count for a great deal in public life. Chorley's voice and his looks, together with a certain natural cunning, had enabled him to establish himself as one of television's best-known interviewers and reporters. He had one other useful attribute for success. He was extremely lucky. Chorley happened to be on the spot when the present crisis broke. He had deftly persuaded an impressionable government official that he was the one man best able to handle official coverage, much to the disgust of his colleagues. Now, for a 120-page book, that quote that I just read is a massive amount of real estate to invest in what's basically a tertiary character, one whose primary plot purpose is to serve as a red herring. Although Chorley is one of the few guest parts in episode one who survive all the way through to the end of the story. But Terence has things to say about Chorley, and the role that he and his type play in the media landscape. If you wonder why Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat name-checked Harold Chorley in a later episode of Sherlock, I don't know for certain, but it's easy for me to speculate that it was this paragraph that caused him to remember Chorley more than the surviving TV performance. Captain Knight, another major character. Again, he's a captain and not a major. His death in episode four is one of the best shown on Doctor Who up until that point in time in the show's history. He is described mostly as tall and young. His voice is described as awkward and almost painfully sincere. His little crush on Anne Travers is described in Chapter 4. He could easily have sent for a technician, but he welcomed any opportunity to work with Anne Travers. And Terence does retain this dialogue exchange, which is one of the few truly progressive moments in the story. Thank you.
How's it going? Just fine. What's a girl like you doing in a job like this? Well, when I was a little girl, I thought I'd like to be a scientist, so I became a scientist. Just like that. Just like that. Terence bolsters the episode one cliffhanger, moving it into chapter four, with the revelation that the Yeti have returned being the end of chapter three. Terence reassures us that, quote, incongruous as they were, in the setting of the London Underground, the Doctor felt no great surprise at seeing the Yeti again. Terence describes the Great Intelligence as a, quote, malignant, disembodied entity, condemned to hover eternally between the stars, forever craving form and substance. And with a footnote back to the abominable snowman novelization. Man, that's good prose. And that's episode one. Terrific. 30 pages of text in a 120-page book. Do the math. A quarter of the book is lavished on episode one, which is one-sixth of the story. Now, when you devote a quarter of the book to one-sixth of the story, something else has to suffer. So after the break, let's jump ahead and talk about episode four. You all right? What's happened? Carol, what happened? Gone. Well, not to all of them. Yeah. All of them? I said so, didn't I? All of them. Evans, what about your party? Arnold? Gone, sir. Captain Knight, too. Knight? Hopeless. Can't fight them. It seems indestructible. Can't fight them. You were right, Doctor, when you said they were formless, shapeless. You were right. Listen. Listen, everyone. It's the other Yeti model. It's here. It's somewhere in this room. Noise, I've been hearing it on and off. Your Aldrich. pockets! What? Open your pockets, Colonel! Uh. Quickly, quickly, come on! Uh. How? Uh. They bring the Yeti! Uh. And that's Professor Travers entering the room with a cliffhanger his face a lifeless mask, now belonging to the enemy. Episode 4 introduces us to the notion of the Doctor storing a piece of the web in a tobacco tin. Terence in 1976 adds the line, Smoking's very bad for you, he says, reprovingly. That's one of the few moments of Terence adding text to the TV episode 4. Chapter 10 of the novelization is entitled Danger Above Ground and it sees the massacre of almost all of the supporting cast up to this point. On TV, vivid characters that we've come to be interested in, if not truly care about. They're all about to go. Sergeant Arnold, momentarily, Corporal Lane, Corporal Blake, and Captain Knight, our Dolly soldier. On TV, this is realized by location filming, the unmistakable pulsating sounds of space adventure, now applied to the Yeti, as well as the Cybermen, and lots of Douglas Camfield's best direction. Terrifying stuff. I recognize that, even just from the telesnap reconstructions back in the summer of 2010, in the sleep-deprived haze of feeding a newborn at three in the morning. Quote, The colonel himself sprinted for the warehouse wall, running, dodging men all around. Some were smashed to the ground by Yeti, or smothered by the web guns. 
but others seemed to be getting through. The colonel became aware of Blake close to him. Run clear, man, he yelled. Two men together made an obvious target, but the warning was too late. Blake crumpled, choked by the stifling blast of a web gun. That's technically flawless prose, as you've come to expect from Terence, but it's also a rushed and perfunctory staging of the intense, soul-crushing, almost slow-motion massacre staged on TV. Captain Knight's death in the electronics shop is also written differently. Terence opens that section with a slight joke, the doctor busily engaged in looting the shop and at the back of his mind hoping that the government would remember to pay compensation. This is how we learn of Knight's death in the book. Knight waited. He kept thinking. He could hear the faint electronic sound of a Yeti signal. It seemed to be very close. Suddenly, two enormous shaggy figures loomed out of the mist, eyes glowing red, fangs bared in a savage roar. The Yeti had found them. The doctor heard the roars just as he found his vital missing component. Stuffing it in the box with the others, he ran into the shop. Two Yeti waited there. The body of Knightley sprawled in the shop doorway. That's effective writing. Knight dies off-screen. We learn this by his corpse. But compared to what we know now from the recovered TV episode, we see Trouton physically try to pry the Yeti off of Knight. Ralph Watson has to do a pretty incredible stunt in real time, get dragged over the shop counter by the performer's Yeti costume, and then assume his character's death position upside down, eyes open, mouth open in a silent scream. This death could have been duplicated pretty easily for the book, but instead Knight goes off screen, and all that hard Douglas Camfield work going to waste and not being adapted point for point. When Lethbridge-Stewart returns to the fortress, as you heard in the audio clip before, he sounds scared and panicky, but not in Chapter 10 in the novelization. The colonel finds the doctor as the doctor leaves the electronics shop and doesn't get Nicholas Courtney's despairing lines about the enemy being formless, hopeless, shapeless. There is good writing. The cliffhanger, ending Chapter 10, quote, With curious formality, the Yeti entered the room and took a position to one side of the door. A second Yeti entered and stood on the other side. Then Professor Travers came in. He stood like a barbaric monarch, flanked by guards. Father! cried Anne joyfully. She started to move forward, but the doctor stopped her, and saw that her father's face was blank, mask-like, all traces of humanity wiped away. With a shock of horror, she realized what had happened. He had been taken over by the great intelligence. Terence's writing is good, as usual. Strong vocabulary, no run-on sentences, fast-paced, page-turning action. But up to this point in the podcast, we're used to Terence expanding on the action, adding internal thoughts from the characters, or inserting his own barbs at a story's plot illogic. Here, though, Terence rushes through a pretty powerful TV episode and dials back some of the intensity. Episode 4 of Web of Fear is something I'd rather watch on TV than read in the book, and that's unusual for a Terrence adaptation. Let's wrap up, though, by circling back to the Episode 2 material. That was a Trout and Free episode on TV, Pat on one of his periodic vacations. Now, Trout and Vacations could scuttle a story. The need to write him out of Episode 4 of Evil of the Daleks puts a huge dip in the middle of that adventure, in the middle of five interminable episodes bumbling around the Maxtable home. Or the way David Whitaker 
contrived him to be absent in episode 2 of The Wheel in Space meant that plot-wise the Doctor had to spend all of episode 3 strapped to a gurney, and he doesn't take a single step until the middle of episode 4, and doesn't lock eyes with the Cybermen until 9 minutes before the end of the final episode. So, write the second Doctor out of the middle of your story, at your own peril. What pacification meant for the Web of Fear is that we don't get on screen where the Doctor meets Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, our future Brigadier, for the first time. Terence, however, is not bound by that absence. This is a book. Actors don't take vacations in books. A tall figure appeared, torch in one hand, revolver in the other, covering the doctor. It was a man in battle dress, the insignia of a colonel on his shoulders. Even through the semi-darkness, the doctor caught an impression of an immaculate uniform and a neatly trimmed mustache. The soldier peered down from his superior height at the small, scruffy figure of his captive. Then who might you be, he asked, sounding more amused than alarmed. Feeling at something of a disadvantage, the doctor answered sulkily, I might ask you the same question. I am Colonel Alistair Lethbridge Stewart, said the precise military voice. How do you do? I am the doctor. Are you now? Well then, doctor, whoever you are. Perhaps you'd like to tell me what you're doing in these tunnels. Chapter 5. Battle with the Yeti. Although neither of them realized it, this was, in its way, as historic an encounter as that between Stanley and Dr. Livingstone. Promoted to Brigadier, Lethbridge Stewart would one day lead the British section of an organization called UNIT, United Nations Intelligence Task Force, set up to fight alien attacks on the planet Earth. The Doctor changed in appearance, and temporarily exiled to Earth, was to become Unit's scientific advisor. Footnote, see Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. But that was all in the future. For the moment, the two friends-to-be glared at each other in mutual suspicion. That's pages 40 through 42 in the 1984 Target reprint. There are some other great moments scattered in. Jamie. Although their coats were khaki rather than red, Jamie found it hard to forget that English soldiers were his traditional enemies. The underground fortress has rooms painted a depressing war office green. And while you can't do much to save Private Evans, Terence tries. Leaning into the comedy, the man had a round, cheerful face with ears that stuck out like jug handles. His uniform was crumpled and ill-fitting, his enormous boots badly needed a polish, and an oversized beret gave him the air of an elongated mushroom. Captain Knight groaned out loud. But later on, Jamie found something rather disarming about Evans's frank timidity. And of course, there is the line from the colonel that I mentioned earlier about the Welsh usually making such good shoulders. And that elongated mushroom line is probably one of my favorite Terrence descriptions ever. The doctor meeting Travers for the first time in 40 years of story time had no difficulty in recognizing his old friend, used to the changes wrought by time, which is more poetry than Terence gives to any of the massacred deaths in Episode 4. And Travers finds it hard to see the Doctor as the brilliant scientist described by her father. Lethbridge Stewart will nod approvingly. Funny little chap, this Doctor, but he certainly knew what he was about. And the Doctor observes, Lethbridge Stewart was the kind of soldier who didn't know the meaning of surrender. If the worst came to the worst, he'd die fighting the enemy with his bare hands. Now that thought will still be with us in Battlefield more than 20 years later. 
The doctor in chapter 8 thinks, starchy sort of fellow, this colonel, but a man you could rely on, unaware that this was the beginning of a long friendship. And yes, that's Terence pretty much quoting Casablanca again. They both hurried out of the room. And at the end, as Bill and I discussed earlier, Terence as a scene, the scene really, where the colonel pitches the whole idea of unit for the first time. Myth-making. Next time, we jump forward another month to September 1976. Malcolm Hulk returns for the first time in seven months to adapt his second-to-last TV story. And sadly, it'll be his second-to-last target novelization. Join me, and a first-time guest, for the novelization of Frontier in Space, Doctor Who, and the Space War. This the little boy at play I don't remember growing older When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? Thank you. For joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Bill Evenson. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. Then you can also find me on the Trap One Podcast from time to time. I write about Doctor Who on Twitter using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DRU Pilgrimage, which Elon Musk recently evaluated at $45 billion. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time we'll be discussing another novelization, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. (laughs) 